Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 90, The Pickwick Disaster and the Dance of Death. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss a terrible tragedy in early 20th century Boston. In 1925, the building housing a popular nightclub collapsed, burying many of the patrons. After a desperate rescue effort, 44 bodies were found, making the Pickwick Collapse one of the deadliest disasters in Boston up to that point. From our modern perspective, it provides an ominous foreshadowing of the deadly Coconut Grove nightclub disaster less than two decades later. Unlike at Coconut Grove, however, fire was not to blame for the Pickwick disaster. This time, a popular dance called the Charleston was blamed for the collapse. But before we talk about prohibition, speakeasies, dirty dancing, and a deadly tragedy, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For this week's featured historic site, we're going to send you pretty far outside of Boston. New Bedford is so far south on the south coast that it's actually south of Providence, and we wouldn't usually send you this far, but we're featuring a temporary exhibition at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. From the 18th century until the industry's decline in the late 19th century, New Bedford was one of the world's foremost whaling ports. By the 1850s, it had a higher per capita concentration of wealth than any other American city. Luckily, some of the families who were accumulating all of that wealth were also accumulating artifacts of the whaling industry. In 1903, the local historical society began fundraising to open a museum, and by 1907, the Whaling Museum opened its doors. Today, its collection includes a half-scale model of a whaling ship that's 89 feet long with a 50-foot mast. There are five whale skeletons, a blue whale, a humpback whale, a sperm whale, and a pregnant mother and fetus North Atlantic right whale, none of which are products of the whaling industry. And of course, there's a selection from the hundreds of thousands of artifacts and original documents of the whaling industry on display. For a few months this summer and fall, one more extraordinary item will be on display at the museum. But not actually at the museum. This particular object is so large that the museum had to partner with a former textile mill located nearby just to have enough space to display it. At 1,275 feet long, the painting, The Grand Panorama of a Whaling Voyage Round the World, is the longest painting in America. Here's how the museum website describes it. The panorama is a maritime artwork of national historical importance, authentically depicting a whaling voyage originating from the Port of New Bedford in the mid-19th century. It was painted in 1848 by New Bedford artists Caleb Purrington and Benjamin Russell, who traveled it around the country as a commercial enterprise. The panorama as a form of public entertainment was developed in Europe in the late 18th century and subsequently made its way to the United States after demonstrating its commercial potential to an armchair traveler audience. A panorama as defined by Robert Barker, who patented this exhibition style, means all view. He felt that spectators should feel like they were really on the very spot, that they should feel as if they were part of the scene in a surrogate reality, an imaginary grand tour of the world. This is precisely what visitors will experience. In the late 1840s and early 1850s, preceding the age of cinema, 
The panorama was designed and performed as a moving panorama, a form of entertainment where multiple scrolls moved across a stage similar to how a reel-to-reel film would later be shown. This amazing painting is being shown publicly for the first time in decades, but only through October 8th. The panorama is on display at Kilburn Mill from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily, with no admission fee. The Whaling Museum itself keeps the same hours, but does cost $17 for adults. We'll link to the museum's website in this week's show notes for directions and more information. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a brown bag lunch session at the Massachusetts Historical Society. On Monday, August 6th, join archaeologist Madeline Kieran of Brown University for a discussion titled Sensory Experiences of Daily Life at New England Hospitals for the Insane. The MHS website describes it as, Despite their reputation as sites of abuse and neglect, 19th century hospitals for the insane were originally envisioned as technological marvels that would solve the national mental health crisis. This talk examines how New England lunatic hospitals were designed to mobilize sensory experiences to cure mental illness, and how these designs shaped patient experiences. The talk begins at noon at the Massachusetts Historical Society on Boylston Street. It's free, and registration is not required. Bring a lunch to enjoy while you listen. Because we know that not everyone can get to the back bay at lunchtime, we also have a bonus event this week. On that same day, August 6th, at 6.30 p.m., author Anthony Samarco will be giving a talk about the industrial history of the Neponset River. If that name sounds familiar, it's because you've probably read one of his books. Mr. Samarco has written more than 60 books about Boston, everything from neighborhood histories to profiles of local businesses like Jordan Marsh and Howard Johnson's to histories of the tea and pictorial histories. If you enjoyed the story of the Mother Brook last week, you already know what a rich industrial history the Neponset River has. From the first grist mill at Dorchester Lower Falls in 1634, to the creation of the Mother Brook, to the founding of Baker Chocolate, mills along the Neponset pushed innovation forward throughout the early history of Massachusetts. Learn more at the Adams Branch of the Boston Public Library in Dorchester at 6.30 p.m. on Monday, August 6th. The event is free and registration is not required. We'll have information about both events in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. On July 4, 1925, tens of thousands of Bostonians celebrated Independence Day with fireworks, public concerts, and parades. A smaller, but significant number, wanted to start the party early. July 3rd was a Sunday, but hundreds of jubilant young people were going out for the night in anticipation of the next day's holiday. The only problem was the 18th Amendment banning the importation, manufacture, or sale of intoxicating beverages. It had gone into effect five years before, and yet, even at the height of Prohibition, there was a rowdy nightlife to be found in Boston, if you knew who to ask. One man who could probably tell you where to find a good time was Timothy Barry, who news reports would refer to pointedly as the treasurer and guiding hand of a Chinatown institution called the Pickwick Club. Located at the corner of Washington and Beach Streets near today's Chinatown Gate, the Pickwick was named for Charles Dickens' first novel, The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club. 
In the book, members of a fictional private club engage in a farcical romp across the English countryside. Their adventures inspired clubs of the same name to spread from New Orleans to Sweden. The Pickwick Club in Boston was referred to as a social club, but with a nod and a wink, as all of the cool kids knew that calling it a social club was just another way to say that it was a speakeasy. Operating as a members-only club gave the Pickwick an advantage over any police officer who might have cared to enforce prohibition. As the Globe describes, Under the law, the nightclubs are not subject to the rules imposed on places of amusement where admission is paid. They are supposed to be open to members only, and the members are supposed to have membership cards. They are not even open to the police unless the police have search warrants. Flashing a membership card gained entrance to the club, which was located on the second floor of a five-story building that was once the Dreyfus Hotel. Once inside, clubgoers could enjoy cocktails mixed with the illicit booze that rum runners nightly smuggled into Boston Harbor, and they could enjoy dancing with their sweethearts. Not only was 1925 the height of Prohibition, it was also nearing the peak of the Jazz Age, and parts of Boston society were having trouble adjusting. You may remember the New England Watch and Ward Society from back in episode 40. They were the stodgy moral police who took it upon themselves to censor the plays that Bostonians could see and ban books they didn't approve of. And as jazz began taking the world by storm, they were up in arms. The mere idea of couples dancing together drove these moral police into conniptions, as seen here in their 1919 annual report. It seems almost incredible that dancing should have degenerated to so low a plane as it has on some of the modern muscle dances for couples. The name alone of one indicated what it obviously aims to imitate. This dance in Boston is forbidden by Secretary Casey in public entertainments, and when indulged in in private dances has led to expulsions from the hall by police officers. Surreptitiously employed by persons who use it as an introduction to immoral solicitation and other indecent actions and conditions, this year led to the closing of several public dance halls. We have found these types of dances unmolested in cities outside of Boston and are now attempting to have them pronounced legally obscene in the hope that they thus stigmatized will be more generally suppressed. In the field of the dance, with its liberal etiquette, it is not easy to bring about practical results. Unrestrained, there seems to be no limit to which dancing will not descend. A year after Prohibition went into effect, the 1921 Watch and Ward Society annual report spends pages upon pages extolling the moral benefits of the alcohol ban. Then, in a section titled Artificial Stimulants to Immorality, it goes on to identify the next creeping moral threat one that they were so far powerless to stop. Dancing is another powerful stimulant to loose life. The jazz spirit is a spirit of abandonment. When it manifests itself in the shimmy dance, it is the acme of temptation. We are to be congratulated on the entrance into our police system of women police officers. This is a preventative measure of great importance and none of greater importance than to keep our dance halls well supervised. While the watch and ward was busy trying to keep young couples from dancing, 
other groups were hard at work trying to ban scandalous tunes like this. There's nothing surer. The rich get rich and the poor get children. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? Later in 1921, a trade magazine for sheet music publishers reported on the tension between young music buyers and Boston's moralistic Brahmins under the title, Naughty Songs Must Go, Avow Women of Boston. In further proof that everything old is new again, the article quotes Mrs. Arthur Davidson of the State Federation of Women's Clubs. Most strenuously, we characterize Ain't We Got Fun and Ma and How Would You Like to Place Your Head on My Pillow as suggestive. These songs are horrible. They should be obliterated. So serious is this matter of double-meaning songs, we almost feel that the fight should be undertaken by the Watch and Ward Society. A sheet music publisher named Billy Moran responds, What do they want anyway? Moran glowered. Do they want popular songs that are hymns? Do they want to take all the joy out of singing? I suppose the reformers think that an artist can write Nearer my God to thee words for a jazz song. Well, I tell you, it can't be done. It's not enough that they've had their way about what we can eat and drink. Now they want to come into our homes and give our pianos the rubberneck to see what kind of music we're singing. We're giving the public what they want, that's all. If the public didn't want Ma, why did it turn out to be one of the biggest jazz hits of the season? The young couples who were spending their Independence Day Eve at the Pickwick Club certainly fell into that latter camp. Jazz was the hottest ticket in town, and no dance was hotter in 1925 than the Charleston. In its typically dry style, Britannica describes the steps that make up the Charleston. Characterized by its toes-in, heels-out, twisting steps, it was performed as a solo, with a partner, or in a group. Mentioned as early as 1903, it was originally a black folk dance known throughout the American South and especially associated with Charleston, South Carolina. Analysis of its movements shows it to have strong parallels in certain dances of Trinidad, Nigeria, and Ghana. In its early form, the dance was highly abandoned and was performed to complex rhythms beaten out by foot stamps and hand claps. About 1920, professional dancers adopted the dance and, after its appearance in the black musical Runnin' Wild in 1923, it became a national craze. As a fashionable ballroom dance, it lost some of the exuberance of the earlier version. Charleston music is in quick 4-4 time with syncopated rhythms. In the basic step, the knees are bent, then straightened, as the feet pivot in and out. Weight is shifted from one leg to the other, the free leg being kicked out from the body at an oblique angle. The basic step is often interspersed with strenuous movements, such as forward and backward kicks while traveling forward. We'll include video of couples dancing the Charleston in this week's show notes. When somebody's good at it, the Charleston is a dynamic, exuberant, and incredibly fluid dance. So, of course, in 1925, it was being denounced from all sides as morally questionable, racially unpure, leading to promiscuity and or sterility, and even sinful. In his book, The Wicked Waltz and Other Scandalous Dances, Mark Knowles quotes a Catholic bishop as saying, Dancing the Charleston is an unpardonable sin. 
and refusing absolution to women who would partake in such an activity. Within a few years, even the city that gave the dance its name wanted to disavow it, as Knowles quotes from a city report. The city of Charleston, South Carolina, objects to having a current dance of the jazz variety tagged with its name. The so-called Charleston, far from flattering the justly proud Charlestonians, is causing them to blush more or less continuously with mortification. It is a rude dance, affected by a portion of the Negro population, and being executed usually in a spirit which is not polite. Let it be known, therefore, that Charleston indignantly disowns the Charleston, whatever may be its intrinsic charm. All that public outrage over the Charleston didn't stop young people from packing the dance floor on July 3rd, 1925. The Pickwick was filled to capacity and beyond, with about 125 guests packed into the small club. Singer John Duffy was leading McLennan's Jazz Orchestra when an employee heard a sound like a granulated substance falling on paper. He found nothing wrong, but a few moments later, drops of water began dotting the dance floor. Knowles picks up the story from there as things began to go horribly wrong. Around 3 a.m., John Duffy finished crooning West of the Great Divide. The crowd shouted for an encore of the song, and the band struck up a snappy jazz version of the tune. The room full of revelers began to Charleston. Some set off firecrackers. Frank Decker, another singer at the club, recalled, At least 50 couples crowded on the dance floor, and they danced like folks gone mad. Before the orchestra had played a dozen notes, I could feel the floor swaying. I heard loud cracks, but thought they were firecrackers. As the dance neared its close, the orchestra speeded up the tempo and the dancers got crazier than ever. A July 4th AP report describes how merriment turned to terror in a split second. Shortly after three o'clock, without warning, the roof and all five stories went plunging downward in a twisted ruin. One side wall, next to which an excavation for a new building was being made, buckled in the middle and fell in on a part of the ruin. The front sagged forward and leaned at a crazy angle. Survivors said the crash came with a rumble that resembled an earthquake. Merrymakers in the club had been setting off firecrackers in the early morning hours, and for a moment, the dancers thought that a giant cracker had been exploded. They were on the second floor of the building, and in an instant, the wall and three floors above them came crashing down, crushing the dance floor to the street and onto the basement. The next day's Boston Globe carried a slightly different perspective on the moment of disaster. Rocco, another of the musicians, said suddenly, Aren't these lights getting dim? And Glennon glanced up and agreed. Just then, the colored porter remarked, Look at the sand sifting down from the ceiling. At that, lights winked out, and a second later came the awful crash. To John Owen, who was sitting at a table near the front of the room and somewhat nearer the eastern wall, there seemed to be two distinct occurrences. He said that he first heard a crackling like fireworks and paid little attention to it. Then women cried out, and he suddenly saw the floor drop on the eastern side of the room, leaving a great gaping wound. The dancers, who had just stopped their slow stepping around, 
shouted in alarm, but were gone in an instant. He said he stared in absolute blank astonishment. For the moment, there seemed to be a lull, during which he sat in security on a still-standing section of the floor. He stared at the crowd rushing for the narrow door. In another instant, he fell, in the midst of a loud, roaring, smashing noise. He fell two stories, but by chance fell on top of the debris instead of going down under it. Again came that tragic silence of a moment which follows almost every catastrophe. Then, pain and terror had their way. Men and women recovered consciousness deep, deep in that hideous mass of brick, plaster, and timbers, and groaned with the torture, or desperately shouted for help. This was the scene that confronted the first emergency responders to arrive. Boston police officers Neil McDevitt and George Gardner were the first on the scene. Two walls of the building were still standing, though nearly the entire interior had collapsed in on itself, carrying the chairs, tables, walls, floor joists, and dozens of people down to the cellar below. When McDevitt and Gardner showed up, there was a huge dust cloud over the scene, and the night air was torn by the screams of the injured and dying, unseen, under untold tons of debris. The two officers charged up what remained of the club's front stairs, and they managed to free a few injured and trapped victims from the fringes of the ruin. But there was little they could do when faced with the enormity of the disaster. The Globe describes how the building was pancaked in on itself, saying that the four floors were sitting almost flush atop one another. Yet an AP report notes the strange tableaus of normalcy that could be found among the destruction. The collapse did queer things. The corner of the dance floor in which the orchestra sat remained fast, and the piano and bass drums were visible from the street. A vase of flowers sat atop a desk nearby and was undisturbed, as was a bottle of whiskey that was left on a windowsill in the corner. The fire department arrived next, and within 15 minutes they had saturated the scene with floodlights, braced the swaying walls against further collapse, and brought their heavy equipment in to help with the search. It was a grim and desperate task. The Globe describes how rescuers, for a time, seemed to be working in vain. Hearing a voice, the firemen would work down as far as possible and shout, Hello! Help! Get me out! would come back a piteous cry. Here's a woman, the shout would go up, and men would rush to tear at the timbers. They shouted again and again, and finally silence. For a long time, no bodies were reached at all. The AP adds, Voices, mostly women's, that were heard calling from beneath the wreckage during the early hours became silent later. Nevertheless, there were people alive under the rubble, and the pace of rescue operations seems not to have slowed. They worked through the night, and the Globe describes the steady stream of emergency vehicles ferrying victims away from the scene. Long before daylight, the ambulances were making racing trips back to the hospitals with their loads of wounded people. Even when a living victim was found, the tangle of beams, joists, wires, and pipes meant that he or she usually couldn't be moved right away. As firefighters and laborers struggled to remove the rubble and free the victims, medical residents and even clergy entered the wreckage to give whatever relief they could, as the AP relates. Firemen and doctors came by the scores, and until dawn poked about the ruins with flashlights. Interns from the city hospital crawled beneath the ruins wherever they could, 
giving hypodermic injections to survivors in pain, but who could not be released. A priest from St. James Church, just around the corner, gave absolution to the victims who were carried out. Even doctors entered the hole, performing emergency surgeries under harrowing conditions to help release those who were trapped, as the AP continues. Screams of those caught beneath the brick and wood could be heard by firemen and doctors as they pried their way through the wreckage. From a hole about 20 feet deep in the basement of the building could be heard the cries of women's voices. One man was taken out alive only after physicians had amputated two of his fingers in order to free him from his trap. He laughed and smoked a cigarette while they operated. As day dawned on July 4th, the screams of the injured began to fade, and one by one, they went silent. Finally, with the sun high in the sky, only one voice could be heard from under the rubble. The Boston Globe carried a detailed description of the desperate attempt to free Edith Jordan of Somerville, who was buried about eight feet down, right in the middle of the heap of debris. She was trapped but awake and able to describe her situation. I am lying on my back, she said, and there is a great beam across my chest. There is something else over one thigh, and there are two people lying on my legs. They are dead. Firefighters, police officers, and a group of Italian laborers led by a man named Hugh Non converged on the location and began working together to free the last living soul under the wreckage. Three heavy jacks were put under a corner of a section of floor and held it up like a pent roof. Non's men tore at the heap of brick at the entrance and pitched it out. When they reached timber, the real work began. Joists were brought and stacked up over the top of what was rapidly becoming a tunnel. Then came the mining, the sawing of timbers, the cutting with great shears of the metal ceiling, which was folded and twisted all through the hole. All this took time, hours went by, and Mrs. Jordan constantly talked with the men working towards her. Only one, or at most two, could work at a time, and as one came out exhausted, he said invariably the same thing. God, but that woman is game. I want some water, she said. By this time, the men could see her head. Somebody rushed over to a drugstore for a tube and funnel, and the imprisoned woman took a long draft and thanked the man who gave it to her. I want something to eat, she said presently, and chicken soup was brought and fed to her. Presently, she called out again. You know, my husband was with me, and he's in here, she said. No, he isn't, shouted Commissioner Glenn. He's out here waiting for you. That was not strictly true, but her husband was outside and safe, though somewhat injured. Oh, that's good. That's good, said Mrs. Jordan. She told again of the beam resting on her. We're sawing it, said the commissioner. He and Chief Senate hung above the hole, and forty men stood anxious for a chance to do something. Another way was found to the left. The men got to Mrs. Jordan and found that beside the great beam, a metal lathwork was pressing her. This they cut with shears. The beam over her they sawed. Then they dug beneath her. They fastened a life belt around her with a rope and made it fast to a joist, which men outside worked as a lever. Inch by inch they lifted her, while two gangs of men strained at the tackles that hauled away the timbers at her sides. 
At each gain, they let her body slip down into the hole they had made beneath her. Every tool that was needed, every rope, every bit of timbering, had to be brought up to the teetering timbers, and the work was desperately slow. It was 11.50, nine hours after the building had collapsed, when Mr. Glynn called to the ambulance driver, Get your motor going. A moment later, the stumbling, clumsy men, their faces black with the dirt and dust, passed Mrs. Jordan out to the waiting stretcher and covered her with a blanket. She was herself black, her bare arm was grimed, and still wore a bracelet. Her wavy hair was full of dust, but she was still game. Mrs. Jordan was rushed to Boston City Hospital by noon, but it was too late. She was able to speak to her husband briefly, but she died minutes after arriving. Nobody else would be pulled out of the rubble alive. First responders worked at the collapse site for 50 straight hours, but soon after Mrs. Jordan was removed, the operation moved from rescue to recovery, with heavy winches and steam shovels brought in to pull the wreckage apart in search of the bodies that were still buried. In the end, 44 bodies would be found, making this one of Boston's most deadly disasters up until that point. An Associated Press report from July 7th remembers some of the famous and infamous clubgoers who died that night. Down in the Chinatown district, where the nightlife centered around the ill-fated club, they talked about the gay habitués whose battered bodies were being buried today. They remembered William Toots Murray, against whom indictments were brought in connection with the bromide gas bomb incident in the Rhode Island State Senate chamber a year ago. The boxing fraternity mourned for Frank Tillo and Netto Flanagan, local ring favorites. While over at Station 4, they were raising a purse for the relatives of Lieutenant Inspector Benny Alexander, who died while waiting for the man he was trailing to visit his accustomed haunt. And for the family of patrolman Paul Halloran, detailed to guard the club. While rescuers were still tearing through the wreckage looking for bodies, and while the victims were being remembered, Boston was already looking for someone to blame. On July 4th, the city building inspector blamed the collapse on overcrowding and on the construction work that was going on in the building next door. A statement from Building Commissioner John H. Mahoney and John M. Casey, chief of the licensing division of the city, placed the blame for the collapse on overcrowded conditions in the night resort. Considering the fact that no official with authority to prevent overcrowding was present, the statement said, it is probable that the management took advantage of the night-before crowds and readily accepted all who came. The building was undergoing alterations. The work was not completed. The club occupants apparently overcrowded the premises beyond the strength of the floors. On July 5th, police shot one looter and arrested several more. On July 6th, as workers were still pulling apart the wreckage in search of bodies, a grand jury was convened and spent 16 hours examining the site and questioning witnesses. They took an immediate interest in the owners and officers of the Pickwick, and the AP reported that at least one of them was nowhere to be found. Timothy J. Barry, proprietor-manager of the club, has not been seen, nor has his body been found. The authorities want to question him. The floor manager, James F. Glennon, died with his guests. On July 7th, a number of contractors who were working on the building next door were arrested, 
along with the city building inspector who had signed off on the work, and on the 11th, sealed indictments were handed down against them. On the 14th, architect Henry Haven was arrested, and he was charged with manslaughter for his role in planning the building under construction next door to the Pickwick. By Thursday the 16th, a dozen men had been indicted, they had all pled not guilty, and the trial was set to commence the following Monday. All were acquitted at trial, where the true facts behind the collapse came out. In The Wicked Waltz, Knowles cites trial coverage from the Chicago Daily Herald, the Kingston Daily Freeman, the New York Times, and the Bridgeport Telegram to assemble this explanation of what happened. At the trial, engineer Hugh Stanley Yurkehart testified that he had actually inspected the building supports on Friday, the day before the catastrophe, and discovered that the earth surrounding the concrete piers had been dug away. He further stated that he had warned Hyman Bloomberg, who was the lessee of the building, that this presented an imminent danger. Other contributing factors to the building's collapse were a fire that had occurred about four months earlier on April 13th. Firemen who had put out the fire testified before the grand jury that they had dumped at least 7,000 gallons of water on the second floor to extinguish the flames. William F. Glennon, who was the orchestra leader and brother of the club's manager, testified that after the fire, the dance floor had been moved from the center of the club to the side, near the Beach Street wall. James J. Hendrick, Boston building inspector, had actually inspected the structure 48 hours before the disaster and pronounced it safe. After the accident, he stated, Although some of the woodwork was charred, the supporting timbers were not sufficiently damaged to warrant installation of new beams. On Wednesday, July 1st, three days before the collapse, there was a heavy wind and rainstorm in Boston, and part of the building's roof had blown off, soaking the dance floor with water. A hole had been chopped in the floor to let the water drain off into the basement. Former Lieutenant Governor Barry, who helped with the rescue efforts, commented, I had feared this disaster weeks before it happened. Several days ago, I passed by the building, and its condition shocked and astounded me. I could not understand why the building had not been condemned. I saw that 50 supporting timbers and a sidewall had been damaged by the recent fire. Ever since, I thought the building should be condemned. Its condition suggested a crash. At the trial, engineer General George W. Gerthels, who had supervised the construction of the Panama Canal, revealed that the collapse was due to Pier 2 giving away, triggering the breaking of the other building supports. In his testimony, he stated that Pier 2 was constructed of the rottenest concrete I had ever seen. So the building had been weakened by fire undermined by construction, and soaked by rain until the structure just couldn't take any more and gave way. The collapse of the building may have been caused by this unlikely confluence of events, but in the public's eye, there was another culprit. The fact that the collapse came at the moment when the crowd began dancing the Charleston seemed like more than a coincidence to the average newspaper subscriber in 1925. The July 6th edition of the Washington, D.C. Evening Star made the connection. The collapse came while the floor was filled with dancers. The conclusion is obvious. 
that the vibration caused by the dancing of a large number of people precipitated the accident. Even on the night of the disaster, officials in Boston were worried about the effect that Charleston might have on other clubs in town, as the Globe reported. Upon hearing the facts, and hearing the rumor that similar dancing is going on in the Phalanx Club of Roxbury, better known as the Black and White Club, and in the Lambs Club in the Back Bay, Building Commissioner Mahoney peremptorily ordered these clubs closed. The Pickwick collapse was about as viral as a newspaper-era story could get. It had everything. Death and destruction, illicit dancing, illegal speakeasies. And as the story crisscrossed the country, the Charleston took the blame, with communities all around the country banning or curtailing what was becoming known as the Dance of Death. In Passaic, New Jersey, the police chief banned the dance on public safety grounds, saying, The Charleston is all right morally, so far as I know, but we do not want any casualties here because of it. In Texas, an op-ed in the San Antonio Light said, Reformers and moralists of all sorts look upon the Charleston as perhaps the most harmless of all dances since the stately minuet. It violates no laws, no codes of which they know anything. But to the structural engineer, it is a menace, an invention of the devil, monkeying with the laws of vibration and the building codes. The tango may be a home wrecker, but the Charleston is a house wrecker. And an official statement in Kansas City said, The Charleston dance may shake the foundations of public morality all at once to, but when it weakens the foundations of buildings housing dance floors, it ought to be stopped. That's some fake news. (laughs) And banning a dance as dangerous to the threat of public safety, health, and morals is not effective in getting the kids to stop dancing. The Charleston craze would continue undisturbed by rumors of its destructive power, spreading from Boston to Seattle and from Sydney to London. Before long, even respectable dancing schools were teaching the Charleston, though they did make a few changes for decency's sake. The AP hints at how the Charleston was both accepted and tamed by the powers that be. August 25th. The Charleston has officially come into its own, but if the Society of American Teachers of Dancing has its way, it will be a dance of dignity, censored to win the favor of people of culture. The battle for recognition of the Charleston nearly split the Dancing Masters Convention here yesterday. New England representatives especially protested because the rhythmic swaying, clicking of heels, and stamping of feet was alleged to have caved in the Pickwick Club in Boston on the night of July 3rd, causing the deaths of 35 persons. It was finally agreed that the flapper and chic mode of doing the dance was to be combated. The glorified Charleston was demonstrated in the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom. The kicks, suggestive movements, and complex motions were eliminated. The feet must not be more than 45 degrees out of line with the body, and there must be no leaning backward. Only two years later, though, the Charleston was already being supplanted by the Lindy Hop and other new dances. But the next time somebody is complaining about twerking, or the Humpty Dance, or whatever the kids are doing these days, just remember that your grandparents probably danced the sinful Charleston the dance of death. And you turned out okay. To learn more about the Charleston and the Pickwick collapse, 
check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 091. We'll have a lot of news coverage of the disaster from July and August 1925, information about the book The Wicked Waltz, and a link to the Watch and Ward Society's annual report. We'll also have videos of couples dancing the Charleston, so you can see just how amazing it looks when someone's good at it. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming events. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and our analytics tell us that a lot of you do, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the 1920 Revere Beach Riot. <laughs>